Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. The Lord is our salvation. What a glorious savior we have that we proclaim together as a congregation this morning in our songs and in our praise and worship. We really get to the high point of our worship service this morning as we now read from God's word and hear an explanation of it. And the passage of scripture that we'll be looking at this morning is taken from the book of Acts. The book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, it's in your New Testament. And uh, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and reading from verse 1 to 7. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 6 verse 1 to 7. As many as are able and to honor God's word, could I please ask you to stand? Acts chapter 6, beginning at the first verse, hear the word of God. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmias, and Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Just so far in the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I can't cook. (laughs) I can't grill a fish. I can't roast a chicken. I can't boil an egg. I can't even bake toast. (laughs) But I do know how to make a killer snackwich. (laughs) It's a skill passed down to me from one generation after another from my dad. I can open the fridge and combine whatever's in there into a mouth-watering morsel. Never mind what time of the month it is. 
You know, sometimes you get to the end of the month and the only thing that's left in the fridge is a soft-looking tomato, <laughs> a lone block of feta cheese bobbing in the tub, half a gherkin, and what's left at the bottom of the bovril jar. I can combine those elements into something that would even impress Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> but, but I'm a simple guy. My go-to snackwich is the classic, cheese and tomato, a slice of bread, a layer of cheese, a thick slice of tomato, and I don't want to be too technical here, um, but it's best if another top layer of cheese is added in a sharp cheddar, the bottom layer, I see some people are taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> This isn't the sermon yet. <laughs> and recipes aren't the kinds of things you want to write down. And the bottom layer of, che uh, of cheese, an, an extra layer of aged gouda, and, and then a slice of bread on the top. And then all of that goes into the snack with you. And I know, I know, there's too much jammed in there. And so while it's snack you eat the cheese oozing out of the sides, trying not to burn your fingers and your tongue in the process. I can hear I'm speaking to some people here. I call it my cheesy supreme. <laughs> Acts 6, 1 to 7 is a little like my cheesy supreme. It's layered. Consider the slices of bread on either end. The top and the bottom of Acts 6, 1 to 7. The first part of verse 1 and verse 7. Read with me in your own Bibles. Now on these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, and then go and take a look at the end, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Can you see, as you look at the text, that Acts 6, 1 to 7 is about church growth? At the beginning of the story, there is an increasing in number. And while there is stuff in the middle, by the time you get to the end, the number of disciples is growing again. Multiplying. Acts 6, 1 to 7 is about church growth. What comes after the bread in my cheesy supreme? It's layers of cheese. The second part of verse 1, together with verse 5 and 6. Read along with me in your own Bibles. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And what they said in verse 5, pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Can you see that Acts 6, 1 to 7 
is about church unity. There's disunity at the beginning. There's a spat between these Hellenists and these Hebrews. There's a problem. There's unity at the end. The whole gathering is pleased. There's a solution. Acts 6, 1 to 7 is about church unity. What's in the middle of my cheesy supreme? A thick slice of tomato, seasoned to taste. I'm not going to tell you what the seasoning is. That's my, that's my special recipe. The center of our story is verse 2 to 4. Read together with me. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Can you see that Acts 6, 1 to 7 is about church organization. Some of God's people are set aside for spiritual acts of service. Some of God's people are set aside for practical acts of service. At its heart, Acts 6, 1 to 7 is about church organization. Acts 6, 1 to 7 is like my cheesy supreme. Slices of bread, layers of cheese, and a thick slice of tomato. Here's our outline this morning. Church growth, church unity, and church organization. And here's the big idea that I want to get across to you this morning. Churches grow as the organism is organized. Churches grow as the organism is organized. And so the first point this morning is church growth. Number one, church growth. And it's the first part to remind you of verse one and verse seven. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. The church, at the beginning of the story, is increasing in number. The church, at the beginning of the story, is increasing in number. And while there is stuff in the middle, by the time you get to the end, the number of disciples is growing again. It is multiplying. Acts 6, 1 to 7 is about church growth. Now, we need to have a discussion about church growth. I don't know about you, but when I hear the phrase church growth, I do cringe. I expect the worst. Because I hear of so much in abuse in the church for the sake of growth. I see so much in the church that is sus for the sake of growth. Churches fixated with numbers. And for numbers' sake, churches going to inappropriate lengths to fuel growth. 
the latter part of the 20th century saw a rise in what we call the seeker-sensitive movement. Influenced by church growth gurus such as Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, seeker-sensitive churches strive to be as modern and as relevant and as attractive as possible. The goal is to reach unbelievers, and that's not a problem. But all too often, seeker-sensitive churches devolve into seeker-driven churches. Churches devoted to packing in the masses and keeping them entertained. But unless they are converted, seekers are comfortable in their sin goats, not born-again sheep. And you can't build a church with goats. Because sheep are from Mars and goats are from Venus. They're similar, but they're not the same. Both sheep and goats bleat. But sheep go bar, and I'm told by farmers that goats go gnaw. Sheep have wool, goats have hair. Sheep graze grass, goats browse for leaves, twigs, and shrubs. And most importantly, lamb roast tastes great and goat is a little tough. They're similar, but they're not the same. And you can't build a church with goats. When I hear the phrase church growth, I cringe. But there's a danger of the pendulum swinging in the opposite direction. Because of illegitimate church growth, conservative churches like ours um, demonize the idea of church growth. They are very suspicious by nature of church growth. As if we honor God by us for and no more. That's not Luke. That's not the book of Acts. Church growth on the day of Pentecost through gospel proclamation in Acts 41 delights him. Church growth, as the Lord built his church in Acts chapter 2 verse 47, excites him. Church growth, as the Lord purifies his church in Acts 5.14, thrills him. Luke is not against church growth. Luke's all about church growth. But note, Luke gets excited about the addition of disciples to the church, Christ followers to the church. When Jesus called his disciples, he said, follow me. A disciple is a follower, one who trusts and believes in a teacher and follows that teacher's words and examples. Making disciples is our great commission, the the mission of our church. This is the first use of the word disciple in the book of Acts. But Luke is going to use it 27 more times. Disciples put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And they live out transformed lives to his praise and glory. Legitimate church growth is about the addition of disciples to the church. And Acts 6, 1 to 7 is about church growth. But secondly, it is about church unity. The second part of verse 1 and verse 5 and 6. 
Read together with me. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And what they said pleased the whole gathering in verse 5. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, who was a proselyte of Antioch, and they set before the apostles, uh, they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. There's disunity at the beginning, there's a spat between the Hellenists and the Hebrews, a problem, and there's unity at the end. The whole gathering is pleased, there's a solution. Acts 6, 1 to 7 is about church unity. Church isn't a building. It's not brick. It's not mortar. It's not stone. It's not an object to be admired. Church is an organism. It's living. It's growing. It's changing. She is to be cherished because she's alive. The biblical metaphors describing the church point to her being a living organism. Different members that comprise of one body of Christ. She is the bride of Christ. She is the family of God. Even when described as a building, the temple of God, we're told that she is living stones with Christ as the foundation and cornerstone and the Holy Spirit dwelling in her. The church is a living organism. And in the words of Tim, amen, praise the Lord, the church is alive. A living organism's kryptonite is disunity because disunity is anti-God. God is one and his people are to be a witness to his oneness. We are to be one, united. Disunity doesn't glorify God. Disunity fails to put his intrinsic harmony on display. We are to have the same mind. We are to live in harmony with one another. We are to have the same love. Our opinions will differ on a range of issues. Yet even in disagreement, we are to be united in love. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. We are to be in full accord, fellow souled, soulmates, soul brothers, united in heart, avoiding all divisions, all strives, showing the presence of faith, united in common cause, even in the midst of diversity. We are to have one mind. We're to be one family. We're to have one shepherd. We're to be sheep of one, of one flock. We're to have one head. We're to have one foundation. There is one body and one spirit, just as we have been called to one hope that belongs to our core. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
The conflict at the end of verse 1 arises between Hellenists and Hebrews. The Hellenists were Jews that lived throughout the world. They were scattered Jews amongst the Gentile-speaking world. And so they spoke Greek. They used the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word Helen uh, means Greek. Hellenists are Greeks. The Hebrews were Jews that had remained in Judea near Jerusalem. They used the Hebrew language. They were from Jerusalem. The Hebrews had eminence in Jerusalem. The Hellenists were foreigners to Jerusalem. And so they were marginalized. And, and so it makes sense that the Hebrew widows received charitable care there was likely an existing mechanism that took care of them. They, they were on a list. Whilst overlooking the Hellenist widows is somewhat understandable. And so there is a grumbling. There is a complaining. There was disunity and there was disharmony between these two groups. The resolution to this problem is so interesting. The church appointed seven men to oversee the mercy ministry. Seven men to distribute food to the widows. Now, now mark this. The names of all seven of these men, Philippos, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, all seven men have Hellenistic names. They have Greek names. Dwell on that for a moment. The spat has broken out between these eminent Hebrews and these marginalized Hellenists. There's disunity in the camp. There's an internal threat to the organism. And the solution is for the eminent Hebrews to give up the distribution of charity, to hand over the task to the marginalized Hellen Hellenists. Welfare of both the Hebrews and the Hellenist widows would be in the hands of the foreigners. Acts 6, 1 to 7 is about church unity. Number three, it's about church organization. And this is the center of the story. This is the heart of the story. Verse 2 to 4. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Some of God's people are set aside for spiritual acts of service. Some of God's people have been set aside for practical acts of service. At its heart, Acts 6, 1 to 7 is about church organization. Churches grow as the organism is organized. Think of a skeleton. The human body is alive. It's organic. But to have shape, to have some function, it needs structure. The skeleton provides the human body the organization that it needs to function well. So too, churches need some level of organization. Not a complex organizational structure, a simple spiritual structure. Some of God's people 
set aside for spiritual acts of service. By spiritual acts of service, I mean teachers who, who spread the word and edify the saints and evangelize the lost. Some of God's people are set aside for practical acts of service. And by practical acts of service, I mean servants who engage in various kinds of ministries. You put those two together, you organize the organism, and churches flourish and grow. God's people who are set aside for spiritual acts of service in Acts 6, 1-7 to are the apostles. They say of themselves in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry, the ministry of the word. That word ministry there is diakonoa. It's where we get the word deacon from. The apostles are deacons. The apostles are servants. The apostles are ministers of the word. They are spiritual servants, organizationally set aside. God's people who are set aside for practical acts of service in Acts 6, 1 to 7, are the seven men of good repute. According to verse 2, they are to serve tables. Again, that word is diakonio. Again, it's the word that we get deacon from. The waiters are deacons. The waiters are servants. The waiters are ministers of the word. Uh, in this case of, uh, uh, sorry, uh, are servants of the people. Practical servants organizationally set aside. They're not called deacons in this text, but they bear the characteristics and they perform the duties of a deacon. A deacon is one of two recognized offices in the New Testament church. Along with elders, they come from the membership of a local church. And they serve the local church by appointment. While these seven men are not called deacons, they bear the characteristics of deacons. They to be men of good repute. They to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And they to be of wisdom. You'll notice their walk, their witness, and their wisdom. Deacons are elsewhere described in Scripture along the same lines. Whilst these seven men are not called deacons, they bear the duties, the functions of deacons. They serve the local church by appointment. Deacons are not a decision-making committee. Deacons are not an oversight committee. Deacons serve. One more note about the appointment of these seven men. You'll notice the congregation chose them and the apostles appointed them. Members of the congregation take part in the appointment of church leaders. At its heart, Acts 6, 1 to 7 is about church organization. How do we go about applying these seven simple verses? Well, for a start, if you're visiting with us this morning and you don't know the person of Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, or maybe you've been here for a while and have not yet placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I want to draw your attention to verse 7. In verse 7, we read, And the word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Do you notice that it is disciples which multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, 
that Luke is drawing our attention to. Friends, God is seeking those who will follow Jesus Christ. Those who will be disciples of the Lord Jesus. Not just as a person in history which they acknowledge for good teaching, but as a Lord that they will follow. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A disciple is a person who lays down his life and picks up his cross and follows Jesus. You can see a disciple by the way that they live their life. You can know a tree by its fruit, and you can know a Christian by, what, by how they live. Jesus Christ says, come to me all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But friends, it's not the kind of rest that never works, the kind of rest that sits outside on a deck chair and enjoys life. Jesus calls those who come to him to be obedient to him, to live lives to his praise and to his glory. Uh, it is a life of faith, which, which on the other side of salvation is joined by works which give glory to God. It is faith which is the root of salvation. It is works which become over time the fruit of our salvation uh, that grant us assurance that we are truly saved. We are tr to trust and obey Jesus Christ and we are to be obedient to him. The call here is that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ is to obey. And I'm not talking about a works-based salvation. I'm talking about a call that says that in times past there was ignorance and God overlooked it. But he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We are commanded to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And God gives us and grants us faith to do just that. Even as you hear of Jesus Christ, that he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Even as you hear of his death and of his resurrection from the grave, you're commanded to put your faith and your trust in him that you might live. Live in this life abundantly, doing good works to his praise and to his glory, and then live eternally in the life to come because of the salvation that you have been granted. To the church. Churches grow as the organism is organized. Church growth, church unity, church organization. That's what this text is about. Churches grow as the organism is organized. As we read Acts 6, 1 to 7, we should resolve to fear church growth less. Be weary of church growth that uses illegitimate means. But ensure that we don't hinder or hamper legitimate growth of the church. Secondly, as we read Acts 6, 1 to 7, we should commit to pursuing church unity in our local church. Ever since the fall we have lived in a fractured world, a world of disunity, a world of disharmony, a Cain and Abel world, a Tower of Babel world, but not the church. 
The church is God's plan A to herald the return of his creation to unity, to wholeness, to oneness. And in a world which would pull us apart, pull apart male and female, pull apart rich and poor, pull apart local and foreigner, pull apart black and white, the church must stand firm and the church must stand together as one. We are to be intentional, dealing decisively with disunity, especially in a church which is as diverse as ours. We are to intentionally glorify God. As we read Acts 6, 1 to 7, and as we get to the heart of this text, we should endeavor to be a church organized according to the pattern laid down by God in his word, led by a plurality of elders, served by recognized servants called deacons. Like a body of many parts, we need to recognize and celebrate gifted individuals whom the Holy Spirit brings into our midst for the common good. Leaders who can be an example to the flock, who edify and build us up toward the mature man. May the Lord God bless us as we go about this work that he has laid before us. Let us close in a word of prayer. Father God in heaven, I do thank you for your church, your bride, whom you bought with your own blood, whom you promised that you would build and that you would protect and that you own. Thank you, Lord, that we see church growth, even in our midst, even as the hill and Arcadia have been going through a season of growth, we give you praise and glory for what we see. Help us, Lord God, not to hinder growth. Help us, Lord God, to celebrate those who are gifted in our midst to serve. Help us, Lord God, to recognize those who are gifted in our midst to teach. Help us, Lord God, to be an organized organism to your praise and to your glory, that we might flourish and grow and put the person of Jesus Christ on clear display to a watching world. We ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.